Hello and welcome to the program. I am J.A. Lovelock. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I speak with crime writer Kathy Unsworth. Kathy has been compared to the cult noirist Derek Raymond, and in this regard, she enters the pantheon of writers exploring London's lowlife. So says Christopher Fowler of the Financial Times, no less. Kathy has also been described as the first lady of noir fiction. So hello, first lady, and welcome to the programme. Hello. <laughs> Very nice to be here. You, to, you too. <laughs> I have to say, I must say something about your hair. I have to tell um, the listeners, this lady has the most fabulous hair. And every time I see her, it's, it's a different colour. What colour are you wearing today? This is a kind of smoky grey which went on top of blue, so it's yeah. slightly purplishly. It's yeah. very noir, I think. Actually. Oh, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's lovely. Oh, lovely. Thanks for being with us today, Cathy. Now, um, the first thing I'm going to ask you, but before I, I start asking, because we were just talking about when we met, and we met on an Arvon course when yes. you were the tutor. Yes, in the middle of a very cold field, one on October, way, way back in the frosty past of time. Yes. I'm trying, was it, was it at Totley Barton or was it? It was Totley Barton. Oh, it was Totley Barton. Yes, yeah. it was. Great. Lovely. Beautiful place. Oh, absolutely. That's my favourite house. Yeah, I think it is the nicest. It's so nice to be away from the world, isn't it? And you just oh. concentrate on your writing for all absolutely. that time. Absolutely, absolutely. In a nice little bubble. Lovely. Now, um, speaking of writing, um, my first question to you is, how many books have you written? Well, I've written six crime novels mm. and I've co-authored um, a memoir with um, Jordan Meany, who was not the page three Jordan, but the original oh, Jordan. Right. <laughs> He yes. was in, in Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's shop on the King's Road and part of the Sex Pistols entourage. So that's kind of like her life in punk. And mm. that was really interesting to do. And it, it did cross over into many of the things that I've written about in my novels, actually. Um, do, so. do you tend to, um, so do you do you tend to co-write with other authors or is, is that a one-off? Or is that something you do a lot? Yeah. That's the only time I've ever done it, and I, and I was asked to do it, and it was it's such an interesting story that I couldn't really say no. It, mm. it was a it was a really enjoyable and interesting thing to do, but it was, um, yeah, it was a departure, and it's quite a a trick to to, to get somebody else's voice and write a book mm. in their voice as well. So, yeah. So when did you start to write? I started writing ages ago when I was nineteen, way back in the last century. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got a job on a music paper so that me doing Jordan's book kind of goes full circle from from that um when in 1987 I started writing for sounds I got a work placement there as a student and uh, yeah so you, you didn't have another job before you became a writer then um, only my rubbish summer job cleaning a guest house in, in Great Yarmouth, where I grew up. I think there's, a, sto I think there's a story in there somewhere. There was a story in there, and all of that has gone into my books as well. Oh, great, great. No experiences wasted. No experiences no, wasted. Yes. Mm -hmm. So where do you get your inspiration from? Well, I, I, I guess when I was very young, I was very into Sherlock Holmes, and I loved... Um, my dad had won a Sherlock Holmes book when he was a schoolboy and he passed it on to me and, and I loved all that and we had those those fantastic Jeremy Brett adaptations of, of Sherlock Holmes in the 80s and 90s that, that fueled that but I hadn't really read any 
crime fiction that really got to me in that way until I read Derek Raymond, who you mentioned at the beginning there, who was a a brilliant writer, um, a not very well-known one, but he almost had the ultimate crime fiction life in that he he had been sent to Eton, he came from an upper-class family, but he completely rebelled against it while he was at Eton and, and in fact got sent down from Eton for, I think it was smoking dough or something like that. <laughs> And then he made very good use of his old school tie to uh, enter into some criminal enterprises with um, some gangsters of the oh. early 60s. Um, and he, because he, he had his posh voice and his eating tie, <laughs> he fronted various long firms for them. And uh, then I think things all went a little bit too woo and he had to, to go um, quickly take his leave of England and he went to le- live in various places in in Spain and in Italy because he was very good at languages um, and at one point he had his own vineyard and oh. I think my favourite job he had was he was head of his, his foreign secretary of his local anarchist collective <laughs> so you don't get to meet people like him very often No you um, don't, so- <laughs> no you don't, no you don't Well you've mentioned Sherlock Holmes so where do you ordinarily draw your inspiration from for your, your novels? Well the first two I guess came the Not Knowing and The Singer were the first two I wrote, and they kind of came from my experiences working in the music business and working in magazines and being in London and, and just wanting to capture London in the 80s and 90s as I remembered it before it all disappeared in theatre. But then um, the book that is about to be reissued, the, the next one I wrote was Bad Penny Blues, which was based on a real murder case. And kind of for me, it has parallels with Derek Raymond's book the book when I met him that had been recorded as a soundtrack with two of my friends um Terry Edwards and James Johnson where he wrote a soundtrack for him to speak to and it was called I was Dora Suarez and it was this photograph he'd seen of a woman he'd been really brutally murdered and he felt so angry when he saw it that he thought I have to write her story the same thing sort of happened for me when I read a book called Jack of Jumps by David Seabrook and it was about these eight unsolved murders that happened in Labrick Grove, where I've lived for 30 years, in and around Labrick Grove, um, from 1959 to 1965. And women were killed re- in really horrible fashion, and their killer was never apprehended. Um, and there's been loads of sort of urban myths built up around it over the years. It's, it's almost as much of a weird puzzle as the original Jack the Ripper, this story. All the women were found either, they were found naked and asphyxiated, and most of them in and along the River Thames itself, west of Hammersmith, um, in a strange sort of configuration. And as I read David Seabrook's book, I started to feel, I think, a similar rage to Derek Raymond when he saw that photograph that he made in Tadora, um, because these women's lives had been so brutal and short, sharp and nasty, and that people couldn't even write about them when they were dead in a way that showed them any compassion. That's why I thought I could perhaps try and do better for them um, and and fictionalise an account of of this time and this place that is so near to me, but also so distant with the intervening 30 years from when it happened. So So is that giving a voice to the victims? Well, I, I wanted to just be able to say... Yeah, try to say something about their lives that 
that made people understand that they were actual human beings. And in many cases, they were mothers. Um, they were obviously all daughters, sisters, you know. They were women who life did not hand a very good suit of cards at the beginning and they did what they had to do. And all the contemporary reports about them and everything that had been written that I found was pretty dismissive of them because of their occupation as sex workers. So, you know, mm. I just wanted to say there was more to them than this. And that whole, the when they get called good time girls, nothing could be further from the mm. truth of their existences, really. Yeah. And your writing, um, it's said that your writing um, is focused on place. W- would that be, Would that be right? Yeah, I did. I did love sort of peeling back the layers of history to try and get to the elaborate grave of the late fifties and early sixties, and the amount of incredibly interesting people who lived there, and mm-hmm. and how their the Venn diagrams of their different worlds, how they interconnected. All the musicians who lived there, all the writers, as well as you know, the the, the immigrants coming over, the Windrush generation, they're all there. The Peter Rackman, the slum landlord, and and his friends Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis. Mm. So it was all all going on in this world that Colin McInnes, in his classic book Absolute Beginners, which came out in '59, describes so so brilliantly as our Napoli. It's just like gangster world of Lavrick mm. Grave, and he he's so I, it was like a case of reading as many books that had been written at the time, watching as many films. Um, and documentaries until I got to the point where I sort of thought, I'm in this world now, I can see it, feel it, hear it. Yeah, it was like method writing, I suppose you could call it. Do you think you would have been so interested in that era if you hadn't lived there? I think that was the connection, the fact that I've lived here for, for quite a long time, since 1987, and obviously I've seen it change massively in that amount of time. but. The certain things are still the same. There's, there are still people making music here. That Portobello Road Market is still here, which I think is its lifeline. Um, mm. And obviously, all these places where these women went drinking and where they hung out—they're all, you know, the, most of the pubs are still here. Sadly, the jazz club, which I'd have loved to have gone to, is now a dog boutique. Oh. <laughs> That shows you how, yes. how much things have changed. Yes. But you, yeah. you know, I can still walk the streets and I can still feel the ghosts stirring around, basically. When I first came to London, I my first job was in uh, Warnington Road, I think it was. Warnington mm-hmm. Road, that's just off, is it Chesterton Road? Chesterton Road, Chesterton yeah. Chesterton Road, yes. And so I sort of have a little bit of... Um, experience of Labrick Grove and it's my dentist is there by the way I still have connections with Labrick Grove but I didn't realize um, the history of it until now you're telling me about it and it sounds quite fascinating and maybe next time when I go back to Labrick Grove I would be thinking about the history and yeah. what's what's gone on there do you want yeah. to say any more about um, the blues <laughs> Lose themselves, the, uh, <laughs> yes. the well. The title of the book came from yeah. Joe Meek record that he produced called "Bad Penny Blues," which was a Humphrey Littleton single. Um, mm. And Jay, Jay Meek's quite famous as as a sort of the godfather of bedroom recording, and also for the fact that he did go totally mad and killed himself and his landlady um, 
on on the 2nd of February in, in 1963. I hope I've got that date right. <laughs> um, anyway, he and and um, he had been working. The thing that started it all off for me was no, the first victim of Jack the Stripper was last seen on the corner of this road in Holland Park, Lansdowne Road, just by the tube. Mm. There's a really big stu Victorian studio that was made for painters, but which in the 50s, this guy called Dennis Preston had a jazz label in there. And he was putting out this trad jazz boom, all that Humphrey Littleton and Chris Barber and those sorts of people. And Joe Meek was one of his engineers. And Joe had invented all these strange little recording devices that Eve, nobody else really understood. But the boffins at EMI who worked with Dennis Preston could make these contraptions for Joe and he could put these strange sound effects on people. And he got that single Bad Penny Blues and really the way he produced it, he really jazzed it up and made it not what Humphrey Littleton wanted. He wanted it to sound like Louis Armstrong, but, but Joe made it much more like if you've never heard it, I think Paul McCartney definitely heard it when he wrote Lady Madonna. It's the piano's way up in the mix and it's that brilliant stride piano style. And it would, it's a brilliant little song. It would make a really great theme music to a detective series eventually. <laughs> um, so Joe is kind of the spectral figure who haunts the soundtrack of the story because um, he was in that book. Everyone associates him with the Holl Holloway Road where he died or he had his recording studio, but at the time Elizabeth Fig went missing, the first girl, he was working opposite where she was standing when she took her last ride. Mm. And that really, that just made something go off in my head. And then just to complete the triangle across the road from them is was a spiritualist organisation. Um, and Joe was quite obsessed with um, trying to reach the spirit world. And he had this seance in his house in Arundel Gardens in Dublin Grove where he saw the death of his hero, Buddy Holly, and he tried to warn him about this. And he did get the date right, and it's the same date where Joe dies as well, all those years later. But in 1967, I should have said when Joe died. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. Actually, that brings me on quite nicely to my next question, because you have been described as a psychic detective. <laughs> oh, <that's my> <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that. Well, I think it's just basically, it's like I was saying, it's trying to find the stories that are left floating around in the air here and, and um, trying to sort of, yeah, give those stories a voice and put people into the minds of the people who these terrible things happen to. Mm. Um, I, I was really helped in that enterprise by that we have got a local psychogeographer here called Tom Vague who has put out a lot of these brilliant um, pop histories um, in various fanzines and various different formats. He's got a great Facebook page and he's online with a lot of it too. And he loves people to join in and give him more information. And so he puts together the history of what happens with all the records that are coming out, all the musicians, all the films. So he puts all the pop culture ephemera into it. And I was really helped to sort of negotiate my way through that old lost world by everything, all Tom's work and everything that he had done. Um, and I really encourage people to check that out if they if they haven't seen Tom's brilliant Facebook site, go and have a look. And there's just so much to it. I'm sure he'll be putting this together forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thanks. Now, you mentioned Sherlock Holmes. And what I wanted to ask you, have you got a favourite? Um, it, well, is, it's, is Sherlock Holmes your favourite detective? 
Or have you got he, another one? I do. I love Sherlock Holmes, actually, because he was my number one. And I've recently been re-watching those Jeremy Brett ones that mm. they've had on on um, ITV player and watched the first series again. And I was still as blown away by that as I was <laughs> when I first watched it in 1984, because... I think they've got amazing period detail in those ones, and he is such a charismatic Holmes. But what really strikes me now is that the stories haven't changed since Victorian times. Um, and you know, the war that Dr. Watson was coming back from was the war in Afghanistan. And all the, all the plots revolve around people trying to swindle their way into other people's fortunes or trying, trying to usurp mm. people, and it's all, you know, the after effects of, of the colonies, it's the after effects of the wars. It's all the same flipping stories that were going on in Victorian times. <laughs> they're just sort of played out in a slightly different way, but nothing ever really changes. No. Mm, mm. <laughs> yes, and, and that's the foundation of writing this, isn't it? They say there are seven, are there seven points yes. um, that never, that you, you can rework them over and over again. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it goes to show that we change the way we dress a little bit. Sadly, because I quite like to walk around with a top hat and tail coat on. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm but, sure you look amazing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we don't really fundamentally change who we are. And, mm, and, yeah. You know. So do you wish um, that you had written um, the Sherlock Holmes type of stories? Or is there another author that you, you wish you, you, you were like? Well, I think... I- I wouldn't want to have done what Colin Doyle did because he was actually tormented by Sherlock Holmes and he was he kind of felt trapped in in, uh, in this relationship with his alter ego that he couldn't break out of and when he tried to kill Holmes the reader said no bring him back. <laughs> I've always been really wary of, of yeah. the idea of writing a serial character who people love that much because mm. you know then you're trapped with them forever and and also I kind of prefer the stories to just end as they are and they could link different people could go on from one book to another which i've had that happen but um this the writers that i love the most um are i love david peace and i love the way he told that secret history of yorkshire in the 70s through his books and that was probably my role model for bad penny blues was him um and the lovely jake arnott who also has written so fabulously about London's secret histories and how everything links those two. And like me, they both really love Derek Raymond and James Elroy, who did, you know, the great secret histories. of. So I think it's their pioneering way of not looking at one character, but looking at the city and the things that we don't know and the things that are suppressed and the stories that, you know, how history is always written by the victors, but what happened to the people who lost, you know, to tell their stories. Uh- are all your stories based on real life? Um, most of them have got their threads in real life. I mean, some of them are, say, the, the first two were extrapolations. They weren't based on, but I had real incidents in them. In the singer I had when Blair Peach got killed on that anti-Nazi rally, I put that in because that's something I really remember strongly affecting me at the time, and 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 I just wanted to sort of show a bit of the flavour of those times. And um, which brings but, me on to our next question. Actually, would you mm. always have um, something current in 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 your work in your book? Well, I don't. Re- I bit worry about writing in the present that we're in now because I just think it's really difficult to get things in true perspective when you're living through them. 
So I, they're always set back a couple of decades at least, so you can see things in the round a little bit more. Um, it's really interesting at the moment in this strange situation we've been in this year that, and I've been doing quite a lot of online workshops with people, and what people are writing, they're not writing about us being locked down. Mm. There's a certain feeling that's being encoded into their writing and how they're writing about what they're writing about that brings in those feelings of claustrophobia and not knowing that we're in at the moment. So it'll be really interesting to see what books follow this year and, and whether um, we go for, when we finally come out of this, if we go for pure escapism and if we won't want to see, we probably won't want to be reminded of this, will we? Well, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, um, if we're living through it, do I want to be reading about it in five years' time? No, I don't think you will. And I think there was a really, I saw an interesting programme about uh, the bubonic plague and the woman presenter who, who did that was saying that she looked back to find if there was any mention of it made in contemporary fiction and there wasn't. And I think that just is when you're living through it. Mm. Yeah. You just nose down, we'll get through it and then run away and forget all about it for a few years. Yes. <laughs> In all of your books, have you got uh, a favourite character or characters that you've written about? Well, one of the characters I really liked was this girl called Donna, who I wrote in The Singer, and she just pushed... I think every writer will have one of these characters that you didn't set out to invent them. They weren't even in your head. And they just push their way in and they take over the story. And, and actually, she's the pivotal character in the story because she actually knows everything. Um, and... I thought I'd completely invented her, but this is the weird thing. When I met Jordan and I heard her story, there were so many similarities. It was so weird. It was almost like, oh, gosh, I already wrote this book once. <laughs> this is her real life. And this is what happened to her. And it wasn't completely the same, but there was just yeah. so many of the elements there. Mm. That, yeah, that was great. And, you know, I, I, I found some historical characters that I really enjoyed writing. I did a couple of books set in World War Two, and I found some really amazing people who lived through those times, you know. And that's what I, I was interested in, normal people just trying to get on with their lives in London. So there were some brilliant characters to find in those time periods too. And would there be any character that irritates you? Now, there's lots of horrible ones, you know, and, and lots of quite irritatingly stupid ones as well. Now, you've got to have them all in there yes, for, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. it to be real. Yeah. And I, I do get in trouble for writing too many characters because I get so interested in everyone that it gets a bit Hogarth at times. Hmm. So what's the best thing about being a crime writer? Just being able to travel in time and space and visit all these worlds and you know, try and say some, try and say something more for people who have been treated badly and never got to have their say. Mm. Try and just make people think before they judge a little bit. That's, and also to celebrate, as well as the dark things I look into, there's always corresponding friendships, love, creativity, you know. And do you think this is the way all your writing is going to be in the future? Well, I'd like to carry on writing this sort of thing, yes. <laughs> but you never know what's going to come along. Like I didn't know I was going to get Jordan's book. And mm. so, yeah, and who knows what's happening after this strange year. But 
I've got loads of stories in my head that I want to write, so I'll just carry on with it as long as I'm allowed to. Really. Yeah, and we and we look forward to reading them all as well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you, you mentioned about when a story ends, it ends. I mean, so do you know when your story is going to end? When it, it the stories in your books? Yeah, I normally I do know the beginning and the ending, but it's just the middle bit that's difficult. And oh, I've think- had that problem as well. <laughs> I think every writer tells me three quarters of the way through every book you go, yeah. what am I doing? Where am I going? Why did I start? And you almost start trying to write another book to distract yes. yourself. <laughs> so yeah, the hardest bit is staying on track and getting, yes. to, getting to that point at the end. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Do you watch crime, um, crime shows on TV? Yeah, I've been, yeah, as I say, we've been watching that Sherlock one again. And I also watched oh, yes. yeah. Babylon Berlin. That was quite an interesting one. That mm. was uh, set in the Weimar Republic just before World War II in that very dark and interesting time. And I loved that because it had um, Brian Ferry had reworked a different Roxy Music tune into a jazz, 20s jazz, which he's done albums of that. He's really good at that. And then they had this brilliant scene where he was actually performing in this decadent cabaret style club where it all goes on and and I love that sort of element of bringing in people music, musicians I really liked into this decadent world where he would have been really at home um, and they were um, based on some crime fiction stories um, so that was quite an amazing one uh, I do enjoy watching I think everything you watch and things like The Wire as well how brilliant is that and it's especially telling all those secret stories of people that you know, and how all those worlds interconnect, that's what I love, how the, the Venn diagrams of the different elements of, of, of what they covered in the wire, that was brilliant. It's all really inspiring, things like that. And the fact that, you know, it seems to get more and more popular, stuff like that, that based is, is based on the real untold stories. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I've just put thinking that because um, I watch real crime shows Mm. And what what do you think the difference is between real crime shows and what I call the made up crime yeah. shows? When the when the true crime ones have done really well, like there have been some fantastic ones lately, haven't there? That one um, about Dennis Nielsen was mm. Mm. and the White House farm. These ITV have, have really got the edge, I think, there with their true crime. The way they've done them and they look properly in period. I found, found it really funny that. People were moaning about the policemen smoking too much when they were interviewing Dennis Nielsen. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> you know, that was the 80s. That, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Without there being cigarette smoking yes. like smog. And they said. But yeah, I think they are really brilliant when they're done that well, mm. when they tell the whole sort of human story and how it's affected the victims. Mm. And, and I really felt that Dennis Nielsen one was done to you. Um, to speak for the victims mm. and and that, that was done really sensitively and well and yeah and ones done like that are, I think they probably are a little bit better than the made up ones <laughs> it's plausibility isn't it yes yeah, absolutely yes I have one final question for you Cathy um, mm. you're walking down the road and you see a dead body what do you do <laughs> oh my word <laughs> <laughs> my- Pad sorry, no. No, I I'd like to think I would call the cops or somebody to investigate what was going on there. I wouldn't just 
stand there gawping and not do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think so, but you don't know until it happens. Have you ever <laughs> been in that situation? <laughs> I, I haven't, no, but it's a, it's a question I like to ask crime writers as yes. to how far they take, how far they take their work. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that I would immediately alert the authorities and see, make sure that they, you know, if they might still be alive. Yeah, yeah. lovely. <laughs> well, Cathy, thank you very much for being my guest today. Absolutely enjoyable and wonderful to see you again after all this time. Yeah, lovely to see you. Brilliant. And I'm sure we'll meet again sometime in real life yeah. in the future. Yeah. Here's, here's to the day when we can clink our glasses yes. in a virus-free world again. <laughs> yes. Okay, Cathy, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. Join us in our next episode for more fascinating and interesting matters that go on behind the yellow tape. Till then, you can keep in touch by emailing info at btytpodcast.com. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.